Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Picture the restaurant. Checkered tablecloth, a steaming bowl of spaghetti and meatballs, a bottle of Chianti. It's a classic red sauce joint. That's where we're going today, using the new book Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, to explore the history behind your pizza and pastas and discuss the cultural and culinary adaptations of Italian immigrants and their descendants nationwide and right here in the Bay Area. From Temescal's Colombo Club to San Jose's Curamonte Deli and from Napa's Vineyards to North Beach. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Italian food many Americans grew up with, spaghetti with meatballs, manicotti, lasagna, is influenced by Italian traditions, but it is not Italian food, writes Ian McCallum, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. Rather, it's a creation of immigrants, mostly from southern Italy, who adapted the tastes of their ancestors to the new opportunities and constraints of life in the United States. Over time, pizza and pasta ended up becoming as much a part of American foodways as the hamburger. But like any good recipe, the story of Italian-American cuisine has endless variations based on region and circumstance. So today we're going to get a good dose of national, international, and local history from the East Coast classic Italian neighborhoods to the Bay Area's own lineages. Joining us first is Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. I wanted to start out with you really describing the cuisine that we're talking about, this red, what's served in red sauce joints. Uh, what, what is it? I mean, it's this celebration of, of uh, you know, uh, love and, and bounty and wealth that immigrants found in America. Uh, it's coming up with um, new ways of, of viewing uh, food from, uh, what they had perceived as what rich Italians would eat, um, even though they never had it. And so what we see today are things that are rich with cheese, with, uh, thick with meat, and, um, you know, comforting. It's like mm-hmm. truly a comfort food. Mm-hmm. And what foods would you put in this category? Well, I mean, uh, all of your chicken parmesans, veal parmesans, uh, shrimp parmesan, if you're Catholic on a Friday in, a, in Lent, you know, um, that is like a, a quintessential element, uh, largely because most of the immigrants were not eating uh, meat in any any capacity, and if they did, it was it's usually scraps and 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 lower um, cheaper cuts of meat, um, sausages filled with with all sorts of parts of animals, um, 
And so they came here and they can suddenly eat, you know, afford to pay for high quality cuts like, you know, a veal or a, or you know, chickens and and, and pork pieces. Yeah. Um, this cuisine, though, you know, the, the the classic, you know, heavy with both meat and red sauce, mm-hmm. that was not really Italian food as it was known to Italians of the early 20th century or today, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, Italians would come um, in the end of the 19th and early 20th century and, and go to an Italian restaurant um, in, say, New York or Chicago, uh, and, and they would be very confused as, as to what they were eating. Yeah. There are journals and things that say, you know, uh, people talk about how it wasn't Italian. Uh, yeah. We have um, a great cut that kind of dramatizes this conflict between Italian and Ital- Italian-American food. Uh, from the 1996 movie Big Night about a pair of Italian immigrant brothers with an unsuccessful restaurant in New Jersey. In this clip, one brother, played by Stanley Tucci, is waiting on an American couple. Excuse me, I did, didn't you say that this was going to be rice with seafood? Uh, yes. Yeah. That is, um, it is uh, Italian arborio rice. The best. Yeah. And then uh, with shrimp and scallop and... I, don't, I just don't see anything that looks like a shrimp or a scallop. I just... Well, I'm just, I mean, it's just it's not what I expected. But I get a side of spaghetti with this, right? Why? Well, no. I thought all main courses come with spaghetti. Well, some, yes, but you see, risotto is rice, so it is a starch, and it doesn't go really with pasta. But I don't... Honey, honey, order a side of spaghetti, that's all. And I'll eat your meatballs. Yeah, he'll have the meatballs. Well, um, the spaghetti comes without meatballs. There are no meatballs with the spaghetti? No, sometimes spaghetti likes to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> every, I, honestly, we've listened to that cut a lot in preparation for this show, and every time I hear sometimes spaghetti likes to be alone, uh, it, it makes me laugh. Um, it's not just the food, though, right? It was also, you know, the individual foods. It was also the actual cuisine and the way that things were served that was different from what was going on back in Italy. Sure. And, and in more formal settings in Italy, even 100 years ago, you would serve your pasta and your meat as separate courses. Um, and so essentially what happened early on in, in America is you would follow that tradition in a formal meal. But American restaurateurs uh, constantly innovating found ways of just merging those together both to shorten your meal duration and to give a sense of value to uh, the customer when they came in and that was a big part of Italian American cuisine especially early on was the idea of of creating good value uh, so people would get these big portions and so it's not really a surprise that today you go to a, a big Italian chain and you ha- walk away with way too much pasta and a giant chunks of chicken parm that you're you're left with you and know endless breadsticks oh and of course <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the cultural and culinary adaptations of Italian American immigrants and their descendants nationwide and right here in the Bay Area we're joined first by Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. And we'd love to hear from you. What are your questions about Italian-American food history? Ian's book has just about any Italian-American food you can imagine. I promise you he has an interesting story about it. The number here is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. So where did this new cuisine that you're describing, where did it take root and really begin to kind of standardize into something that was recognizable as, as red sauce 
cuisine? Well, certainly at first it was, you know, nonas in their uh, kitchens and their tenements cooking for family. Uh, Italians typically settled uh, in very small enclaves of, of their immediate family, the people from their village. And this is why you end up having Sunday dinner that was an enormous group of people that you cooked a red sauce for hours on end. A lot of people will, will criticize and say it's called gravy, not red sauce. Um, that, that is typically a regional, a regional influence. But, um, and then by the early uh, 20th century, uh, in part because the opera singer uh, Enrico Caruso comes, comes to town uh, in New York, um, he starts going out to eat at, at Italian-American restaurants. Uh, he befriends some of the chefs, and uh, he's a celebrity like no other. He's a Justin Bieber, Beyonce-style celebrity. People were following him around, and, and you know, Anglo-Americans uh, and, and Northern European-Americans started going to Italian restaurants in part because they wanted to, you know, spot the celebrity. And that, that was really where you started getting momentum among Italian restaurants in places like New York. And then it began to spread. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, as time went on and this food becomes more and more uh, accepted, do you think there were particular conditions that made Italian-American food so kind of universally loved and appreciated across the U.S.? Well, certainly... Again, I'm going to stress the economy and the value is early on, uh, you had these things called spaghetti houses. It was like a, kind of like a fast food restaurant uh, that would serve large portions. Uh, there were famous ones, actually one named after Enrico Caruso in New York City had a handful of, of uh, individual franchises. But other versions of this existed further west into St. Louis and Chicago. And that really kind of uh, got people rolling into eating spaghetti. Uh, most of these were, were spaghetti early on, uh, be probably because it was an efficient shape to, to have packaged. It didn't have the sort of more complicated uh, mechanisms to produce it. And you had a lot of macaroni companies that were turning wheat, which America grows in great you know, plentiful bounties, and uh, selling uh, macaroni to people to the point where uh, social workers later on uh, in, around the, the Second World War were teaching other immigrant groups how to eat and prepare spaghetti because it was economical and it was thought as a way of making sure they got enough calories. Mm. So this food, would you say there was a peak to it? Was it like post-war that essentially this kind of cuisine had gone across the entire country, it had proliferated, but it also hadn't been... Um, you know, there weren't other food trends that were sort of displacing it. Oh, absolutely. So right around the Second World War, we get some of our, our biggest, like chicken parm is really a, a pre-war invention, but it really begins to spread everywhere after the war, partly because service members had been to Italy and wanted to sort of uh, experience the, the pizza particularly. Um, but one of the biggest things that happened uh, for pizza in the post-war period was uh, this little-known man, uh, Ira Nevin, who invented a pizza oven that used natural gas for heat. Before that, it was mostly coal or wood, and they're very difficult to maintain and keep hot. But, you know, a gas oven, you turn on, it gets hot, uh, and you can make pizza. And that's, this is, you know, in the 1950s and early 1960s, you have pizzerias opening all across the country. The big chains are all founded within a few years of each other. Um, and that really gets things rolling until 
until like the late 1970s when Americans' tastes begin to change again. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk about the sort of distinct Bay Area Italian communities and, and foodways after the break. Mm-hmm. So when you think of the, the Bay Area and what's different about this place relative to other Italian-American communities, what, what do you think of? Well, so uh, California is fascinating because they have some of the earliest Italian immigrants who arrived uh, with the Spanish, uh, in part because Spain had control of parts of, of the Italian peninsula. And so one of the oldest olive groves was planted, I believe, by Italians. Um, and they ended up creating an agricultural uh, community growing tomatoes, growing olives that would eventually serve Italian immigrants later. But before 1870, there were very few Italians in America as a whole, only about 10,000 Italian born before 1870. Um, and then later, you have new, a new wave of immigrants after World War II that is, is less Southern Italians and more, more overall, more Northern Italians. And a lot of them went to California as well. And then obviously now we have the attraction of like a very Mediterranean climate uh, grapes and olives grow very well there. And, you know, so that's, that's the big difference. We're talking about the cultural and culinary adaptations of Italian-American immigrants and their descendants through the lens of red sauce. Nationwide and right here in the Bay Area, we're joined by Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. And we do want to hear from you. What's your favorite red sauce dish and why? Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And you can email your questions or your recommendations for Italian-American dishes to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Italian-American communities across the country as well as here in the Bay Area through the lens of food. Joined by Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. And I want to add another voice to our conversation. Ken Borelli here with me in the studio. First vice president of the Italian-American Heritage Foundation in San Jose and author of Flavors from a Calabrese Kitchen. Thanks so much for joining us, Ken. Thank you. So, Ken, I would love you to give us the map of the Bay Area's kind of major Italian-American communities? Like, where where did people end up settling, and what impact did that have on their lives? Well, 
the the Bay Area has a fascinating Italian American community, and I shared with you a little bit about uh, post earthquake and pre earthquake, and this fantastic document uh, to try to keep the Italian community cohesive during the great earthquake, but. What we forget is that North Beach, which was the center of Italian-American community, was an exciting, vibrant place. It still is, but it isn't like it was in right, it's the kind 1900s. Of attached to the port, right? <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing, ago. too, is that a lot of the early immigrants to uh, California actually came with the gold rush. So it kind of has a color of its own in terms of Italian immigration. Yeah. First part was that many of the immigrants were from Liguria, uh, from the Veneto, and also from uh, various parts of the secondary migration from the East Coast. In addition to that, we were also treated with the original source of major migration from New Orleans. And so you had a strong Sicilian influence coming in from New Orleans. You had the uh, Northern, Europe, uh, Northern Italians coming in as 49ers. And then you had this blending. And from this blending, you had agriculture. You had uh, the wine industry. You had the orchards. And we forget a lot the fishermen and the fishing community is so exciting because it was a blend that probably wouldn't have happened in Italy anyways, but you had Ligurian fishermen from Genoa and you had Sicilian fishermen. <laughs> so I do want to give a plug because a friend of mine wrote an opera about that <laughs> called The Sicilians of Monterey. Oh, wow. And the funny thing about it was The Sicilians of Monterey was about two fishing families coming together. One was from Genoa, the other was from Sicily. Uh, so you had this blend. So there's a, there's a lot of exciting uh, experiences on the West Coast. That's so great. And I want to bring in Trisha from Palo Alto to talk about our famous seafood here. Trisha, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. So my question or my, my comment and question is, um, I have a cookbook that's a New York cookbook. It's called The Silver Palette. And I believe The Silver Palette was a high-end uh, deli in New York City. And they then published a cookbook of a lot of their recipes, which I really love. I, and I think they date from like the 1980s, maybe the 1970s. I'm not sure. But there is a recipe in there called a California, a California Seafood Stew. That's the, what they call it, and I made it just the other day, and it look and it tastes and looks just like chipino. Mm. So mm-hmm. I'm curious whether or not um, whether you know not only the history of chipino, but also this interesting thing of the East Coast versus West Coast evolution of of California food and how much of it was Italian. Absolutely, Trisha. What a great question, Ian. Let's start with you, and then we'll go to Ken on this question of the sort of origins and Bay Area slash Californianess of Chipino. Sure. And so my research would, would suggest that Chipino is really more tied to a California tradition than a broader red sauce tradition because uh, you wouldn't have seen that very commonly 
outside of California until much more recently, uh, like 1980s and on. So it's not it's not surprising that a New York based deli cookbook would suggest that it or call it a California seafood soup when that really to me and, and from my research would suggest is is truly like a beautiful California dish with those those mixing uh, of of Genoese and Sicilian fishermen and and all the the beautiful uh, foods that are available in California. Yeah. Ken, who was it? What do you think? It was the Genoese or the Sicilians? It was both. Well, <laughs> I, I have to say it was probably both for the simple reason that Chipino, uh was what was left over after the catch. And they would stew whatever fish or shell food, primarily Dungeness crab. And I'm not sure. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, Aaron knows if they even have Dungeness crab in the East Coast, but that's a staple of Chipino in the West Coast. But there's also shell food. There's also the catch that's left over. And uh, the large fishing fleets would go all the way up and down the coast from San Diego up to Seattle and even into Canada. So whatever they caught, whatever they sold, whatever was left went into the Chipino. So I'm not going to go step on that landmine, whether it was Ligurian or Sicilian. I think if it was Ligurian, you'd have a different herb, have probably more basil. <laughs> if it was Sicilian, maybe more red pepper. That is great. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to bring in Pam from Sebastopol to talk about perhaps the defining food of, of these cuisines. Go ahead, Pam. Well, I, you know, the program today is about celebrating the red sauce, but I, I don't think I've heard anybody mention tomatoes yet. <laughs> and I am real interested in learning about tomatoes, knowing that not all tomatoes are created equal, and some of them belong in a sauce and some don't, and just what their, you know, what their implication is in the development of Italian food. So often we think of spaghetti and meatballs and it's red sauce, and it's, I mean, there's always tomatoes. Anyway, I really appreciate you. Well, no, what a, great, what a great question. And Ken, I wanted to direct this one first to you. One of the things in your historical work that you point out is that people who came to Northern California got to maintain agricultural traditions, right, that maybe they wouldn't have if they were living in Buffalo because our climate and things are the same. Can you talk some more about the agricultural traditions that, that were maintained and the effect that that really had on tomato uh, farming? Sure. Uh, first thing is in, in the Santa Clara Valley, but I'm sure in many parts of the Bay Area, including the Central Valley, that really was a primary source of food export to the East Coast. So what was served in the East Coast at many, many years, that was grown in the West Coast. When it comes to tomato, I say that all food is fusion food. Because if you think about it, the major components of Southern Italian cooking really took on its flavor, its zing, after the discoveries in the New World. That's tomatoes peppers, uh, corn, all of that influenced Southern Italian cooking. And it's kind of interesting is that Spain, in, in its colonies in the New World, also had Southern Italy was part of the Spanish colonial empire. So that influence and, and bringing the tomato from the New World to Europe in general, but in Southern Italy, 
it was really that it really took off in Naples, and they actually hybrided and and developed certain types of tomatoes that would never have been found in the New World. So it's kind of a zany uh, and uh, exciting area. Yeah. And then again, I think uh, Ian talked about it. I grew up calling red sauce red gravy, just gravy. <laughs> I didn't even have to say red gravy. It was just gravy. And uh, if I want to be polite, I'll say sauce. But I had to do a lot of ketchup, uh, and not no pun intended, but I had to do a lot of ketchup uh, in learning what was Italian food because I grew up with a certain style of food that I thought was Italian until I went to college and had my first dish of lasagna. So the red sauce has really got an interesting history. Yeah. We have some great comments uh, coming in. I want to get to a couple of them. Uh, Kurt writes, uh, My Italian grandma, Josephine Pagano, was born here in San Francisco in 1899 and lived here her entire life. I remember she used to question all the hoopla over pasta dishes. She considered it peasant food, and what was mixed with it was not necessarily a recipe, but what was available. And, you know, Ian, that goes in your book. You talk about the way that this, these class interpretations of food are kind of laced throughout what we know as Italian-American cuisine. Yeah, well, so what I thought was fascinating is early on, Italian immigrants would spend a lot more money than, than other people in America on food, and they would specifically try to buy imported Italian products. Uh, this is actually also where a lot of the idea of Italianness came from because you know you think about it Italy only united as a country uh, just in the in the few years right before uh, the immigration began and so they're really looking at themselves as as individual regional people and they a lot of people will say they still do but the marketing of products to them olive oil uh, dried macaroni uh, canned products eventually uh, like tomatoes this was like sold to them as Italian food not regional food and that really influenced the idea of becoming an Italian was by through the marketing that's so interesting um, we're talking about the cultural culinary adaptations of Italian American immigrants and their descendants all across the country but also right here in the Bay Area we're joined by Ian McAllen author of Red Sauce How Italian Food Became American and Ken Borelli First Vice President of the Italian American Heritage Foundation in San Jose and author of Flavors from a Calabrese Kitchen. We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions about Italian American food history, particularly here in the Bay or, or anywhere else? And does the Bay Area's Italian American scene play a role in your family's history? You can share your story with us. We'd love to hear those. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Six seven eight six. You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum, or the emails forum at kqed.org. And we want to add another voice. We needed a restaurateur on this show, and we want to bring in Gina Carenti, co-owner of Trattoria Cantadina. Welcome to the show, Gina. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So from your perspective, I'm really interested in what it's like to balance tourists and also you know, Bay Area people's expectations of Italian-American food with what you want to present as Italian-American food. Is it, yeah. is it hard? It, it's challenging. Yeah. I uh, have been uh, involved with the restaurant for 22 years 
And we are constantly pivoting uh, from food trends to um, food trends in Italy uh, versus food trends in the Bay Area <laughs> versus food trends in North Beach. There's so many things to consider when you're going up against titans in our area and uh, to just always have something on the menu that people can relate to, but also have things on the menu that are surprising and new and different. We're constantly evolving. And that's, um, I think, what keeps us going. Uh, we've been in business since 1984. And uh, having the same thing that we had on the menu since 1984 probably wouldn't fly today. So you have to keep changing, evolving, making it accessible and also keeping it exciting, which uh, we do. Are, are there things you could not take off the menu? Like you just, yes. you, like what, what are they? What are the things you could not because you know someone would come in and be like, hey, where is my ex? The, uh, my husband is third generation. His grandfather, Vince Crenti started it and his intention was to keep it more authentic Italian and the original menus did not have meatballs. Uh, there was a huge uproar that we didn't have them. They were put on and they will stay on. Uh, people need to see that on the menu to feel comfortable. So we have them. They're delicious. We're famous for them and they will not go away. <laughs> so funny. How do you see yourselves then? If that's sort of honoring this, you know, the, the red sauce version of Italian American cooking, how do you see yourself honoring, you know, these, these other traditions of Italian cooking that are out there that maybe are, are less, you know, centered in uh, tomato-y inventions of Italian American immigrants? How... How do I see? Yeah, like, how do you honor like San Francisco's specific heritage, or you know, a, 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 the cooking yeah. that's done in Northern Italy, or, or things like that? So, I think that a huge part of Italian cuisine and Italian theory of cuisine is keeping it local in Italy. My husband goes back to Italy several times a year, and he brings back inspiration, but his biggest thing is use what is local, use what is around you. So being a San Francisco based restaurant, we have to have sourdough bread. We have to have seafood. We have to have things that locals expect and that are accessible to us because that's what people eat. And I think it, it bridges the gap of uh, Italian food here, what we need to do to make it um, feasible to everyone is use in honoring Italian culture is use what is available locally. So we're tiny, we're a tiny sauce house. Uh, we have 75 seats and I have over 85 vendors I deal with because I deal with one guy that does mushrooms. I deal with one person who does our fish, our meat guy, walks our meat up every day. So it's, it's very local. And I think that's the best way we can honor Italian roots is keeping everything um, as close to us, within blocks of us even. That's what we pride ourselves on. Before we let you go, Gina, I just need to check in. How is North Beach doing? I mean, I really worried about it during the pandemic. I didn't, yeah. I don't want North Beach to be over, you know? <laughs> Nor do I. It was a scary time. The last two years have been uh, something that I could have never have imagined. I think it is, uh, true to our souls and our restaurateur nature to just keep going, putting our heads down and working as hard as we can, uh, coming out of the ashes, one could say, a phoenix coming out of the ashes of keeping the restaurant alive. We were down 16 months. We weren't sure if we weren't going to come back and we did and we're so happy we did. And I'm, 
I think that the the true uh, North Beach people are there to stay. And I and I do feel it's coming back. I think that art and culture and people are just drawn to the area because of its livelihood and its um, ability to recover from stuff like this. So I, I think North Beach will always have Italian heritage. I think it will always have people that will just put their head down and work. And that's just what we are and where we come from. And it will continue to grow and, and, and be what we've always been. Thank you so much. Gina Carenti, co-owner of Trattoria Contadina. Um, I wish I could go there for lunch today, but you're only open <laughs> in the evenings. I, I know that much. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Gina. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We also have a bunch of great comments coming in right now. Uh, Amy writes, I love Italian food that is not rich. And of course, the Americanized version of these dishes are heavy with meat and cheeses, which I don't like. One of my favorites is ratatouille made from fresh roasted garden vegetables. This reminds me of Americanized Mexican food. American tacos, burritos, enchiladas are so different from true traditional Mexican foods which utilize fresh, delicious veggies and highly nutritious beans, rice, and corn and seasonings. I guess we Americans have done this with most ethnic food. I got to say, I like both versions of Mexican food myself, both the, you know, what sometimes people call central Mexican uh, kind of preparations and the stuff that is um, made in right here in the U.S. Um, it's, and I think many people feel this way about their own heritage's cuisines. You know, you can have appreciation for for both the quote-unquote authentic things, which I'm not sure I totally believe in, as well as the Americanized uh, versions. We are talking about culinary and cultural adaptations of Italian-American immigrants and their descendants nationwide and here in the Bay Area. We're joined by Ian McAllen, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, Ken Borelli, first vice president of the Italian-American Heritage Foundation in San Jose and author of Flavors from a Calabrese Kitchen. And we were joined in this segment by Gina Carenti, co-owner of Trattoria Contadina. We would love to hear from you. What's your favorite Italian-American dish you'd like to talk about on the radio? The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about red sauce, Italian-American cuisine here and across the country. Joined by Ken Borelli of the Italian-American Heritage Foundation and Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. Um, Ian, I know you have an answer to this question, and I'm so glad it came in. Uh, listener Stefan writes, growing up in a Michigan household, 
in 1960s Michigan. My Italian food was made by the renowned Chef Boyardee. How did this and related products come to represent Italian food for so many Americans? Well, that is one of my favorite stories, and I and I saw you tweeting about that yesterday. Um, there is a chef who arrived with his brother. Um, they were hotel workers at one point, and then eventually opened a restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was such a popular restaurant that at first patrons would come along and demand that they have sauce they could take home. Uh, chef uh, Biardi, I, I believe, is more of the accurate way of spelled differently than than the modern uh way and uh he begrudgingly gave them sauce in uh old milk jars uh old glass milk bottles and eventually uh he decided to turn that into a canned uh canned sauce and opened a factory um and he he was an amazing businessman and that he had an early version of a take-home pizza long before uh, even frozen pizzas. It was like a, a piece of bread, a sauce, and, a, uh, and some hard cheese. And, uh, you know, from there, he created this empire that he, he then sold and, and lent his name to. And, and yeah, so that's how everyone's eating Chef Boyardee canned spaghetti. It just blew my mind. Chef Boyardee being a real thing. I mean, you Count Chocula being a real thing was as surprising to me. You know, I mean, <laughs> I was just like, wait a second. But I, it's an amazing story. And and actually, kind of, kind of an uh, iconic one too. Um, let's. Uh, we need to talk about pizza. So let's bring in uh, Peter uh, from Saint Petersburg, Florida. Welcome, Peter. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. You know, here I. Look, my background is uh, I, I grew up in the seventies and sixties, and my mother is is Sicilian. Her grandmother, uh, her grandmother, my great grandmother. Uh, was an immigrant, born in 1890s, came to America. And I'm just quoting what my mother said about her grandmother. She said, she was amazed. Pizzerias, she couldn't understand that there would be a pizzerias because she said pizza is just a little thing we put together for kids. You know, it was just (laughs) dough and you put some red sauce on it and put some cheese and things on And it was just for kids. And now there are whole stores, pizzerias. She just was like beyond her. How did it catch on? You know what I'm saying? Why did people love pizza? You know, you can say, you know, everyone loves, everyone loves pizza. And I think maybe it kind of fits in because it's, it's so portable. You can stop into a pizzeria and it's a good meal and, no one complains, you know? That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, thank, thank you for that call, Peter. Um, Mark from San Leandro also has a pizza statement. Um, trying to start a fight, I think, Mark. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. Howdy, Alexis. Hi. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, when I grew up, my best friend was Ben Cola, and his mother's name was Mafalda, and she made the greatest, oh, the, the Italian food I ate over there. But the reason, I, uh, my main reason for calling was about the red sauce. When it comes to pizza, which has two uh, drugs that people can't resist, salt and sugar, uh, I've had them all. And some of them have an orange kind of red sauce. My favorite is the, the <clears throat> round table because <laughs> some about their red sauce, it's the only pizza I'll really eat is uh, because of the red sauce. That's so funny. Th- th- Mark from San Leandro, thank you for that. And Ian, I do need to ask you, uh, we have 
is round table pizza maybe like just the most pizza pizza like represents the trends of pizza making to the extreme like what what do you want to say about round table pizza uh, this is a term i'm, I'm are you talking about oh round okay oh wait we're west coast pizza? that's right it's only west coast right Can, round table is uh a, a pizza chain pizza hut imagine okay, pizza okay. Oh, imagine okay. he said pizza hut instead of round table mm-hmm. oh so like a california style uh pizza uh, I would say it's a Pizza Hut style pizza. Okay. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think what's fascinating about that is I, I would call that a American chain pizzeria, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, like Pizza Hut or Domino's or, or some of the others, uh, they're basically interpreting or reinterpreting uh, the early American New York style pizzas as a sort of breadier, uh, again, we grow a lot of wheat in this country, so breadier, uh, sweeter um, again, we Americans tend to make things sweeter in their in their uh, interpretation of foods, and uh, yeah, so that is probably uh, what I would classify as like a very generically American pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, uh, what's fascinating to me is how uh, a new wave of more Neapolitan style pizzas have have sort of invaded not just in America around the around the world, whether that's in Japan or or in Europe, uh, you find these amazing Neapolitan pizzas that are more like a pizza was 200 years ago in Italy than you do in America in 1955. That's so funny. Ken, how do you feel about pizza and particularly, you know, your Pizza Hut, your round tables, that kind of thing? Well, you know, I have to confess I like it. <laughs> I really enjoy it and I like all the stuff on it. But that's never, that's something I had to learn because all we had was a little bit of tomato, a little cheese, anchovy, and in Calabresi style, absolutely red pepper. And it was a whole different thing. And, and I, I was listening to this conversation, and I was reflecting on Sunday family dinners, which is a whole other area. But uh, I just remembered my own family trying to incorporate the new trend in making pizza. So our pizza started looking like the pizza you would buy at a store. But it never tasted the same because the dough was made different. It was raised two times. It was a whole a whole different process. So, so it, it's kind of funny that, uh, that what is Italian-American, for a lot of Italian-American, we had to learn to cook Italian-American because they were all immigrants and they cooked what they knew in the old country, which was not what, so it was funny to watch them add all of these things, and sometimes they didn't get the ratios right, but it was all good. Right, right, it's kind of like the (laughs) synthesis of different waves of migration and adaptation. To your point about um, Sunday dinners, Michelle writes, my Nana's red sauce had a unique flavor and aroma. I attempted to recreate it and finally realized that the secret ingredient was chicken fat renderings. She would keep the chicken fat from browning chicken and start her sauce with that. The smell of her chicken, uh, the smell of her chicken, of her kitchen was synonymous with her scent, and making this sauce is like bringing her into my kitchen. Uh, let's bring in Maria from San Mateo. Welcome, Maria. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for calling. You're most welcome. Well, I just wanted to share, first of all, I wanted to say hi to Ken Borelli. Ken, this is Maria Pignatti. I hope you are well. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, um, I grew up in North Beach on top of my family's Italian restaurant. 
And my grandmother was Genovese, and my father was Piemontese, both from northern Italy. And I grew up with wonderful food, and I continue that tradition today. I mean, we had traditions that were specific to certain holidays. For example, on New Year's Day, we always had rice. My nonna and I continue the tradition every single year, risotto alla milanese, or saffron rice, because from a little bit of rice, it grows into a lot of rice, and it symbolizes prosperity. And for Christmas, we always had panettone. And for Easter, we always have columba. These are Italian desserts that are traditionally tied to certain holidays. And I also belong to a group that is trying to keep uh, the Italian essence in North Beach, keep mm-hmm. it alive, because North Beach is such an important part. It's a magnet for Italians and non-Italians alike, and we're trying to keep the flavor going. And um, food has always been part of our family. I'm so proud of my Italian heritage. And I have to say, I have to give a little plug here. Um, for Italian homestyle meals, a meal where you can feel like, you know, your grandparents are still with you, even if they're not there. Your parents are still with you if you're not there. We often go to the Ristorante Italiano at the Peninsula Social Club mm. in San Mateo on 100 North B Street. Homestyle food. The chef who is now retired, it was the Matteo Crivello who used to work at Caesars, which was an institution in North Beach. Absolutely. And we still have Primo the waiter from uh, Caesars who is still there. But I'm so glad that you're bringing all this, this topic to the forefront and sharing it because there's so many people out there that can resonate with the topic. And as for pizza... We never really ate the pizza alla americana. We always had focaccia. We always ate focaccia, which came from my grandmother's region in Liguria. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, spotlighting this important topic. Yeah, Ken wants to say a little something to you. Well, I'm chomping at the bits at that one because uh, at the Italian American Heritage Foundation, we have a regional lunch. And uh, last month, it was really interesting, uh, we had a... Uh, we we focused on the region of Lombardia, and two of the people were from Lombardia, and I said, well, what do you have for dessert? And they contacted their family in, um, in Piumonte and Lombardia, and one was a focaccia made with fresh grapes. Whoa. That was amazing. Now, and this is what I find is interesting about that is that what we talk about as Italian-American and restaurants has nothing to do with what we eat at home. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of exciting and different, too. And I think a lot of our listeners could relate to that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll say, too, is that when I cook for the public, I always serve salad first. In an Italian-American meal, no one serves salad first. They serve it at the end of the meal. Mm-hmm. We're becoming Americanized, so we have the salad with the meal, and they can eat it when they want. But it's never was never served first. Mm-hmm. But I do both. So when I'm home, I cook one way. When I'm yeah. in public, I cook another. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. You know, uh, Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, I wanted to make sure we got to what you think the story of Red Sauce says about immigrant assimilation. In reading your book, it almost feels like, is that really the word we should use for this wildly successful new new creations, you know? Uh, because it's not like spaghetti and meatballs assimilated into an existing spaghetti and meatballs culture. It actually changed the culture. So I, I'm wondering what you, what you think your story has to say about sort of broader themes of, of new people coming to the U.S. And, and creating new things. Well, I think that's the beauty of 
living in the melting pot of America is we have all of these different cuisines. I, it, as I write about chicken parm or veal parm, it probably wouldn't exist if there had not been German immigrants living in New York at the same time as Italian immigrants. Uh, the woman who was uh, cooking with uh, chicken fat with her red sauce, mm -hmm. uh, that reminds me of how you make matzo ball soup. Uh, which would be a, a Jewish food that you would have uh, alongside Jewish immigrants with Italian immigrants in the Lower East Side of New York. Um, you know, and so we are at this point where we merge these things into beautiful new foods. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with birria tacos, which is... Yeah. Yeah, right? So that became very popular in New York about three or four years ago. Um, now you can get a birria pizza at a place, right? <laughs> There's um, uh, an immigrant from the Caribbean who opened a new pizzeria in, in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn that has an oxtail pizza. I'm looking forward to trying it. I haven't gotten down there to, to it yet. But what could be a better manifestation of the melting pot of America than, than mixing these flavors into things like pizza and pasta? And, and now, yeah. So I think it's a, it's a nice story to, to talk Yeah, thank you. For Let's uh, go back to the phone to your... Uh, Catherine in San Francisco wants to shout out one of my favorite places. Go ahead, Catherine. Oh, I'm so glad you know it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I just thought the, the discussion wouldn't be complete without plugging Emmy's Spaghetti Shack. It's actually in the Mission, um, and it's a female-owned uh, restaurant. It's been there about 20 years, and to me it is just the epitome of homey, completely Americanized Italian food. <laughs> and it's I, I'm sure they have other things on their menu, but it is just spaghetti and meatballs all the way there. You know, it's funny. Whenever I would go on a trip, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived in the Mission, and I would come home. You want that? You want that meal that like grounds you back into where you live? It was always Emmy Spaghetti Shack. My wife and I went there so many times, and I have I haven't been for years because we live in Oakland now. But I, every time I think about flying into SFO, it's like I suddenly am craving craving spaghetti and meatballs. Uh, Ken, I wanted to ask you. Uh, as we get to the end of the hour here, what is your your restaurant where you go, where you're like, this is th this is my place for Italian food? Oh, that's a hard one. I have to say, I was truly a fan of Caesar's Restaurant. Oh. It's no longer there, and since we we do a cena forte where we eat out once a month in San Jose at an Italian restaurant. It's too hard to have a favorite, it really. And I very will very politic you, answer from no, the first no, vice president I, of the I, Italian American Heritage no, Foundation. No, it's not so. I'm a partisan. I'm a partisan of Calabrese food, and there really aren't any Calabrese restaurants. I know I'm gonna you're gonna get the phone calls after that they make it, but it really isn't. There's no way that they could really cook Calabrese style at a restaurant. That's so interesting. So it's my kitchen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and Ian, how about you? Like, if you had to to pick a place, obviously, you know, you're in New York, so this would be for uh, listeners traveling out there. Uh, well, I'm actually in the market for a new red sauce place because my favorite, uh, Trattoria Spaghetto, closed uh, right before the pandemic because oh. of a rent increase. And, you know, I haven't been out you know, survey, you know, surveying new restaurants because of, you know, the, right. the ongoing problems. But, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the red sauce joint I grew up going to as a, as a kid, uh, El Palazzo uh, in uh, North Jersey. It, it was a, started out these uh, Italian immigrants had a hot dog stand and a pizzeria that they built up into a palace, which is now a reception hall and a sit down restaurant. And they still have the pizzeria, but I would re remember going there with uh, uh, 
with my grandfather who you know was born in in Italy and he would chat with the owners in in, in Italian and you know sometimes we'd get a nice little uh, little pizza yeah. the, as a result of that yes. so <laughs> that's so great um i want to bring in one last phone call rebecca from san francisco we're going to have to go quick but i i love the story you want to tell us go ahead Oh, yeah. No, 26 years ago, um, I had just arrived in San Francisco, and I was trying to put together a Passover meal, and I referenced Joan Nathan's Jewish cookbook, and she had a recipe in there from the 1906 earthquake. Uh, the G- Passover was right after, and um, her recipe was for making lasagna with matzah, which I proceeded to do, and it absolutely tasted horrible. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's my San Francisco Jewish uh, connection, Italian connection. I thought I'd share uh, listening thank to all the you. recipes. Yeah, thank you, Rebecca. I really appreciate that. I wanted to get to a couple last comments before we go. Uh, Casey tweets, I love this, how dare you waste limited airtime on round table pizza? <laughs> Hideous bready garbage. Please screen the calls better. Roman pizza is thin, and that has caught on in many independent pizzerias. Ah, thanks, Casey. And Kathy writes, as a newlywed in 1977, I was so proud to make my noni's Neapolita- Neapolitana spaghetti sauce, no spices except salt and sugar, for my new Italian-American-born husband. He actually didn't like it because he was used to the Genovese Tuscan more spicy version. And, you know, Ken, we have like 30 seconds here, but that was a pretty common thing with different different regions marrying together, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's It was a fusion within a fusion, believe me, <laughs> with a lot of battles. <laughs> we have been talking about the cultural and culinary adaptations of Italian-American immigrants and their descendants through this lens of Red Sauce. We've been joined by Ian McAllen, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American. Thanks so much for joining us, Ian. Thank you. We're also joined here in the studio by Ken Borelli, first vice president of the Italian American Heritage Foundation in San Jose and author of Flavors from a Calabrese Kitchen. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Grazie. (laughs) And earlier, we were joined by Gina Carenti, co-owner of Trattoria Contadina. Go check that place out. The 9 o'clock hour of Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Caroline Smith. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, the hero Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng, Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Executive editors Ethan Tovin Lindy, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.